0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you're ready to get started, we will resume our survey of the Old Testament. Today, we're looking at the book of Proverbs, a book that's loved by many Christians. About three years ago, Will Moneymaker and Craig Miller came to me with an idea for a fun, easy Bible study on the book of Proverbs. The concept was that since there are 31 days in the month of January, that's when we started, and there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, We were to start on day one and read chapter one, and each of us would pick a proverb from chapter one, text it to the other two guys. On day two, we'd read chapter two, pick a proverb, text it to the other two guys, all the way through the end of the month. And we enjoyed it so much, we decided to do it again. Now, not every month we were able to get to 31 chapters because some months don't have 31 days, but we kept doing it. And we enjoyed it so much, we did it for two years. We went through the book of Proverbs 24 times, and it was wonderful. And I can tell you that preparing to teach this lesson this morning on the entirety of the book brought me even new understanding of the book. So it's amazing how deep and how rich the scriptures are, even when you've been through them 24 different times over the course of two years. So it's a pleasure for me to get to teach to you today on this book. That's so well loved, but I just want to remind you all, as we've said many times, these are just overviews. They're not in depth theological analyses of any one book. What we hope is that it whets your appetite to go and study the scriptures for yourself, to be like the Bereans, to test all things and see whether they be true. So I hope that you will read through the book of Proverbs on your own. I know many of you already have. But as we prepare to look at Proverbs today, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer real quick and ask him to bless our time here together. Heavenly Father, pray that you would please anoint this time we have together. Help us to understand your scriptures better in the book of Proverbs so that we can learn more about you, to worship you more fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do like we usually do is I'll start with a little bit of background information about the book of Proverbs. Then I'm going to move into a little more of a literary analysis just to help you appreciate how it's written. Then we're going to spend as much time as we can in our short time here this morning looking at quite a few of the Proverbs with just a little bit of analysis and commentary. Finally, I'll leave you with just a few interpretive rules, guidelines on how to read Proverbs, even though they don't need a lot of interpretation. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll learn something new, like I have learned something new every time I go through this book. So let's begin by talking about this book. It's sometimes called the Proverbs of Solomon. If you read the first verse, that's how it's introduced. Proverbs is also known as the Proverbs of Solomon, and that's primarily because they were written by, guess who, King Solomon. Now, he composed over 3,000 Proverbs. We learned that in 1 Kings 4, verse 32. Solomon composed 3,000 Proverbs. Now, there are only several hundred, the ones that we have here in these 31 chapters, that the Spirit of God inspired to be Holy Scripture. Now, Solomon wasn't the only writer. Chapter 30 is said to contain the words of Agur, the son of Jechah. And chapter 31 is introduced as the words of King Lemuel. We have no knowledge today as to the identity of these two men. The details are lost in history, but we do know that they contributed. Now, three weeks ago, we started looking at what we know as the writings, this group of books, also known as the book, the books of wisdom, the writings or the book of wisdom, books of wisdom. Kerry started us off three weeks ago with the book of Job. Last week, Stephen went into the book of Psalms. And now we continue on through the books of wisdom or the writings with the book of Proverbs. Like we said, King Solomon is the author, the primary author. He was the son of King David, plus those two other guys. We are fairly certain that uh, he wrote these somewhere between 1,000 to 700 years before the Messiah came. And the reason we know that it was at least 700 years before the Messiah is because Proverbs 25 verse 1 tells us that the men of Hezekiah copied out a section of the Proverbs of Solomon. Now Solomon probably wrote before that, obviously, because they copied a section out and they were included in this collection we know as Scripture now in these 31 chapters. Hezekiah, by the way, reigned as the king of Judah right around Uh, 715 to 686 BC. So we know that this book was comprised or put together, rather, at least 700 years before the Messiah. The audience that it's written to appears to be a young man. Solomon is writing to a young man. Could it be his son? We don't know. Could it be just to a young man in general? We don't know. But it seems to be written to a young man, so it's very applicable to all young men. But it's not just for young men. That's the primary audience, though. The theme or the purpose of this book is practical wisdom for godly living. Practical wisdom for godly living. It shouldn't surprise us to find that God's name occurs 87 times in this book of Proverbs. And it should come as no surprise that it focuses a lot on his character and on his works and on his blessings. Now, in three weeks, when Michael Dietzel teaches through the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll likely hear something about how King Solomon came to write these Proverbs. You see, he gave himself over to nearly every temptation known to man under the sun. He went after material wealth, silver and gold, uh, land, animals. He went after heavy alcohol use. He had hundreds of different women. He was very lustful. And everything appealed, that appealed to his eyes, he said, he went after. This was a man who learned things the hard way from this life of sin. Now, I can say on a personal note, I can identify with that. I also learned things the hard way. In fact, I've often referred to this quote from Will Rogers. Those of you that don't remember Will Rogers, he was a 20th century humorist. He once said, good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. And I think King Solomon knew this better than Will Rogers did. And he wrote the book of Proverbs as a father writing to a son saying, learn from my failures. Okay, that's a little bit of background information on Proverbs. Now, for just a little bit of a, a literary overview before we dive into reading through the Proverbs. I think we can all agree, first of all, that this is a unique book. It's not like any of the other 65 books. It's really easy to read the book of Proverbs, and it's easy to remember They're written to be memorable. It's a book that doesn't require a lot of interpretation to understand. It's very easy to understand. And throughout these 31 chapters, it covers a very wide range of subjects. And these are subjects that are very relevant to everyday life even today. They cover things like spanking a child all the way up to ruling a kingdom. These are things that have a broad, timeless appeal. It covers the dangers of alcohol reliance. It talks about buying on installments. It talks about juvenile delinquency. It even touches on labor management. Talks a lot about raising of children. This is the primary source of scriptural information on raising children. It's also the primary source, the book of Proverbs, on directing your finances. And within the book, you will meet all kinds of people. The harlot, the brawling woman, the proud fool, the man who doesn't like to be told his faults. Again, that's someone I can identify with. And the ideal and godly wife in chapter 31, these are just a few of the people that you meet in the book of Proverbs. Now, as far as structure, like I said, this is Hebrew poetry, and the the Proverbs have a unique characteristic of Hebrew poetry known as a parallelism. Most of them consist of two clauses that provide either similarities or contrasts, and I want to give you a couple of examples of that. Let's look first at an example of two clauses that give a similarity, and we'll look here at Proverbs 25, 25, and a lot of these I've got up here on the slides, so you don't have to look them up, but uh, be ready to look and find them in your Bible or your Bible app, and uh, we're going to whip through quite a few of these, but Proverbs 25, 25 says, As cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. As cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. This is an example of two clauses, two parallel points giving a similarity. Okay. So as you can imagine, if you get good news from a far off country, like if you got a phone call from the publisher's clearinghouse house in New York City saying so you'd won $10 million, that would go down like cold water would go down to a dying thirsty man in desert. Right. Two parallel points giving a similarity. And let's look at another example where two clauses provide a contrast to prove the point. And We see Proverbs 10, verse 7. Proverbs 10, 7 says this, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Now, this is an interesting proverb that's found with a conjunctive word, but, to show the contrast. And These are found all throughout chapters 10 through 15. These are usually connected by the word but, like I said, and they describe things that are opposite to each other. So these are two clauses that provide a contrast to prove the point. However, not all Proverbs use two clauses to prove a point, the similarity, or a contrast. Sometimes we see a Proverb that has two phrases or clauses in which the same thought is repeated, but in a slightly different way. I'll give you an example of that. That's Proverbs 23, 27. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. So here we have two clauses in which the same thing is repeated, two clauses saying the same thing. All right, here's another exception. Proverbs 16, verse 7. This is a proverb in which you have a single statement expressing a single fact. Okay, a little different than the norm here. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So again, that's a single statement expressing a single fact. So in summary, on on just looking at the literary structure of Proverbs, we can say that a proverb is typically, not always, but typically a statement that focuses on human character and conduct while making either a comparison or a contrast to prove the point and the Proverbs insistently and repeatedly stress wise living. And wise living in the book of Proverbs is synonymous with godly living. One who's godly or righteous is wise in God's eyes. On, on the other hand, by contrast, all throughout the book of Proverbs, a wicked or unrighteous person is foolish. So these are two paths that are laid out throughout the book of Proverbs. You have the characteristics of a person who is godly, righteous, and wise. You also have the consequences of that lifestyle, the blessings. In contrast, you have the other path, the wicked or unrighteous person, the foolish person, their characteristics and the consequences for ungodly living. Okay, let's look at a basic outline of the different sections of Proverbs. We have the introduction in the first seven verses. We also have Chapters 1 through 9 on Proverbs of Solomon on wisdom and folly. Chapter 10 through midway through chapter 22, the Proverbs of Solomon that deal with practical morality. Then in chapter 22, the last part, through the first part of chapter 24, we have the Proverbs of wise men. Chapters 25 through 29, we have the Proverbs of Solomon that were compiled by Hezekiah's men. Chapter 30, the words of Agur, is that one chapter dedicated to him. And then the first nine verses of chapter 31 are the words of King Lemuel's mother that she taught him. And then, of course, chapter 31 deals with the ideal wife and mother. In the first seven verses in the introduction, it says this is to give wisdom and understanding, like we said, to a young man so that he'll find true blessings in life and escape the snares and pitfalls of sin. All right, now, with that out of the way, the background information and kind of a literary overview in the outline, let's take some time to read through some of the Proverbs, and I'll give a couple of thoughts. And there are so many important themes that I wish we could get to, but I had to choose just one or two, and we're going to go through those. And again, I'll encourage you to go back through. There's so much more that we don't have time to get through, but Let's go to verse 7 of chapter 1, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here we find a major theme, the fear of the Lord. And this is where we're going to camp for a little while and go through as many verses as we can that deal with this subject in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is a foundational concept and a major recurrent theme in the book of Proverbs. Now, Before we go on, let's talk about what this means. Fear here doesn't mean to merely be afraid of God, but to also approach him full of awe, full of wonder and reverence. It's not a phobia. It's not a fear of an evil, abusive, angry parent. It's not that. It's awe and wonder and reverence for the God who created us, who gives us every single breath, And for those of us who understand that every breath could be our last, that at any moment he could decide to take us, that's the God that we fear. He's also our judge, but he's our life giver. So according to the scriptures here, and I hope you'll see this, the very first step in biblical wisdom is knowing God. Now let's move later in chapter one to verses 28 and 29, which say this, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Let's move to chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says that if you seek wisdom and insight, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding let's move to chapter 9 now. We come to the key verse, I would argue, the key verse for the entire book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, to be wise in the biblical sense, according to this scripture, a person has to begin with a proper relationship to the Father. To fear the Lord, again, means that we revere him for who he is and respond to him in worship and in obedience. You see, if God isn't honored, according to scripture here, and if his word isn't followed, as you'll see as you read through the Proverbs, then wisdom, at least as the Hebrew teachers defined it, can never be attained. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 say this, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Let's move to chapter 15, verse 16, Proverbs 15, verse 16. We read this, Better is a little fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a little fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Go to chapter 16, verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And listen to this. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, I find it pretty incredible here in Proverbs sixteen six to find the definition of repentance. Remember what Christ said when he came? Repent and believe. Okay, repent means to turn from sin. And this this verse here in Proverbs says in the Old Testament that the fear of the Lord, by the fear of the Lord, one turns from evil. So this is the first part of the gospel according to Jesus Christ. This is what he said in Mark 115, repent and believe. Scripture is clearly teaching us that in order to turn from sin, we must fear the Lord. Let's move to Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Uh, This brings to my mind Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, that talks about uh, Jesus having overcome Satan, who holds the keys to death, the eternal death, the second death. And it says that because Christ has overcome him, we can live with the assurance of the gospel and break the chains of slavery, of fear of death. Slavery of the fear of death means that we worry about our death. But when we have faith in Christ, we don't have to worry about that. We have the assurance of salvation. For those of us that know where we're going and have that assurance, knowing that Christ paid the the penalty, we don't sleep in fear. We don't live in fear. And I find that resonating here in this proverb. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. All right, let's move forward to Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 28, verse 14. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There might be one or two other verses that uh, I didn't include in here on the fear of the Lord, but as you can see, we covered quite a few verses that are found on this theme in the book of Proverbs, but that's not the only place where we find the fear of the Lord. I just want to mention that it's also found throughout Scripture, including Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Malachi, Zephaniah, many, many times in the book of Psalms. And even in the New Testament, Luke talks about the fear of God, and the book of Revelation also talks about, about the fear of God. Now, why do I mention this? Why do I mention all these other scriptures? There's a couple reasons. First of all, theme of fearing the Lord is important because it's repeated so often throughout the book of Proverbs. But secondly, something else occurred to me that I wanted to bring out today. I want us to understand that Proverbs, yes, it is a unique book. It's different than all the other books in the way it's written, but it's not just a standalone book of wisdom that's disconnected from the rest of Revelation. You see, I want, I want you to understand something as we go through these books. We haven't really talked about this. But, you know, the Bible was written by 40 different authors, 40 different men. They all wrote over a period of 1,500 years. They came from different educational backgrounds, different socioeconomic status. But they all wrote throughout the centuries on one unified theme, and they were in complete unity on this theme, and that is God's promise of a Messiah, a Redeemer that would come and save mankind from sin, all to God's glory, that one unifying theme on the Messiah. Now, it's amazing to me that we can look through Scripture and find things resonating in other books, and here in the book of Proverbs, it's in concordance and in unity with the rest of the Bible. I've heard it said that uh, this is proof that this is a supernatural book, this unity that you find in all 40 of these authors. You could take a modern Christian clearinghouse or a publisher like Zondervan. They could take 10 of their reformed writers and say right on one common theme was, and not all 10 authors would agree. So here we've got 40 in all these books agreeing, even in the book of Proverbs agreeing with the rest of scripture. I'll try to bring a couple of other Uh, Examples of that out here, but I just thought that was worth a mention. All right, let's move forward now. Let's look at some more of these. Let's move to chapter 8. Speaking of knowing who God is, chapter 8 is an interesting chapter of Proverbs. Here, wisdom speaks in the first person. Wisdom speaks in the first person in Proverbs chapter 8. Let's look at verses 22 through 31. We won't read all of this, but if you glance at that, You can get an idea that we see wisdom personified here. And wisdom is claiming credit for everything God has created. Now, you may not realize this. This was quite striking to me when I learned this. The Christian church has consistently regarded this passage, Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 31, as referring to none other than Jesus Christ. Okay, so you might want to make a notation there of those verses that says this is referring to Jesus Christ as the creator. And, of course, uh, if you weren't aware of that, if you read John 1, the first three verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's Christ And it says that all things that were created were created through him. This is also repeated in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 17, and in Hebrews 1, 2. You'll see the New Testament scriptures affirming Christ as the creator. And here it is, right here in chapter 8, where wisdom speaks in the first person, claiming the creation. This is Jesus Christ. This is another example that shows us that Proverbs is not just a standalone book of wisdom disconnected from the rest of Revelation. These themes are connected and in complete unity throughout Scripture. Let's stay in chapter 8. Let's move forward to verses 32 through 36. Chapter 8, verses 32 through 36. Here, we see the consequences of man's response to wisdom's call. What does it say? It promises life and divine favor to those who find her, that's verse 35, but personal injury and death to those who miss her. Now let's move forward to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 25. Here, Solomon indicates that he, the Messiah, is our everlasting foundation. This is interesting. This is another theme we find even in the New Testament. Solomon writes this in chapter 10, verse 25. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Now we read this in Matthew 7. Verses 24 through 25, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is Christ speaking, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now let me read Proverbs 10 verse 25 again. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. First Corinthians 3.11 also says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, let's move on to chapter 30, verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Unmistakable terms God the Father. And God the Son in one verse. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now, this is the answer that's posed at the end of the verse. It surprises the Jewish people when they read this. I know it surprised me when I read this and realized who it was talking about. The Jews are taught that God never had a son. All right, let's move forward in chapter 30 to verse 6. Because this is an important thing we find here in Proverbs. It says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. So what is this saying? It is the absolute sufficiency of the scriptures being asserted here. The absolute sufficiency of the scriptures. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. So what does this mean? This might require a little more unpacking. This is a theme, the sufficiency of scriptures. It's not just found in this one short little proverb, chapter 30, verse 6. We also see it in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 19, which will unpack what this proverb says. I'll just read verses 7 through 11. So, again, you can see the symmetry between proverbs and other books of the Bible. Okay? Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So, again, that's a little longer way of saying what Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. It's telling us here in Proverbs that no man should dare to add his thoughts and his speculations to what God has spoken. This is what we call humanism, when we bring in our own human thought and try to add our own thinking onto what God has clearly taught us. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So this verse, chapter 30, verse 6, condemns any and all attempts to synchronize pagan philosophies And it condemns all cults, and I'll include a few here, like the Freemasons, the New Age Spiritual Religious Movement, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Scientology, the United Pentecostal Church, the Nation of Islam, and the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason I list all these is because each of these groups gives their own writings and their own traditions the same authority as the Bible. That's what this verse is warning about. Don't add to the words of Scripture. I would also include, by the way, The blending of the decidedly anti-biblical philosophies of Big Bang cosmic evolution. The pagan philosophy of neo-Darwinian evolution. Trying to synchronize those with Genesis 1 and 2 scripture. These are things that are outside of scripture. And man's words being added to God's word. Okay, enough of that. Move to chapter 31. The last chapter of Proverbs. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 31. As you glance through those, we don't have time to read all of them. They speak of the virtuous wife, and the virtues of a virtuous wife are the ones extolled throughout the Proverbs. Things like hard work, wise investments, a woman who makes good use of her time. She plans ahead. She cares for others. She respects her husband. She has the ability to share godly values with others, including her children. She gives wise counsel, and she has godly fear. And as Proverbs has repeatedly stated, these are the types of qualities that lead to honor, praise, success, personal dignity, worth, and the enjoyment of life. So young men, pay attention to Proverbs 31. This is the kind of woman that God would have you marry. Young women, this book is not just written to young men. This is a great example of the virtues and characteristics a young woman should have according to God's design. By fearing God, a woman can live wisely and righteously. And again, that is the message of Proverbs for all people, not just young men. Okay, I have to come to a stop here on reading through. Like I said, I missed a lot of themes, so much more here. But uh, we got at least an abbreviated sampling of some of the wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. Okay, now let's finish up with just a few helpful guidelines in reading the book of Proverbs. Like I said earlier, one of the things we love most about this book is Proverbs don't require a lot of interpretation. However, there are a few exceptions, so I'd like to give you just a few things to consider. Okay, five guidelines. Here's number one. Proverbs teach general truth. They're not 100% universally applicable, nor are they ironclad legal guarantees. And I think I'm going to repeat this about three times just to make sure, because some people take some of the things wrong. I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's look at chapter 22, verse 6. This is a familiar one. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, so we know children that are brought up in God-fearing homes Under the influence of godly parents who teach and live by God's standards, typically they follow their training in the adult years. It's not just in Proverbs that we see this. There are other places that teach a little bit on parenting. Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, verses 6 through 8, it says almost the exact same thing that Proverbs 22 verse 6 says. It just expands on it a little bit, like most books of the Bible expand. Again, Proverbs is meant to be memorable, short, quick but we do find this theme repeated now. But we need to stop here just for a minute. And why am I talking about this verse? Because it's a good example where we can learn what Proverbs are and what they aren't. Like I said, they're a general truth. They're not always 100% universally applicable. I know a very godly man that lives right here in town. He's an evangelist who would die for the truth of the gospel. His life is all about teaching obediently, and sharing the truth of the good news of the gospel with others, including his own children. Yet, one of his children is a lost sheep, a total atheist. So how do we rectify the teaching of this proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he won't depart from it? Well, again, we know that these are not Loctite, ironclad guarantees, but they do teach general truths. They're not guarantees. Let me give you one more good example. Proverbs 16.3 is another one that's very familiar to a lot of Christians. It says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will be established. That's what the ESV, the NASB, the RSV say. The King James Version and the New King James say, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your thoughts will be established instead of your plans will be established. Now, I came across this verse years ago as I was a young adult in an article and what the article said was, commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Now, I don't know if that comes from a translation known as The Message, which is, I don't think, probably the best translation of Scripture. But I was all excited, and I went to my parents. You see, we had a family business called Formation Plastics. It always struggled. We never made money on that business. But when I read this article, and I saw this Scripture quoted, it said, Commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. I said, we have to commit formation plastics to the Lord, and we will succeed. And I said, this is a guarantee. This is in Scripture. And funny enough, they pointed to the refrigerator. There was a magnet with that very verse on it. But you know what? We never did make money on formation plastics. So again, it's not a lock-tight, ironclad guarantee. Um, Now, I do like the way the NIV phrases this Scripture. It says... I'd rather like this. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Now, here's what one commentator wrote. I'm going to read this to you because I think it's wise. He says, we sometimes assume that proverbs like this are a direct, clear-cut, always applicable promise from God. But we sometimes assume that if we dedicate our plans to God, then those plans must succeed, and this can lead to some serious disappointment. Many people have dedicated some perfectly selfish or some completely idiotic schemes to God. Then, if it happens to succeed even briefly, they can assume God blessed it, like a hasty marriage or a rash business decision or maybe a poorly thought out vocational decision. All these things can be dedicated to God, but foolish plans, even when they're dedicated to God, can eventually result in misery. On the other hand, a person might commit a plan to God only to have it fail. And then a person might wonder why God wouldn't keep his promise or why he went back on his inspired word. In either case, they failed to see that the proverb, once again, like we've said a couple of times already, isn't a categorical, always applicable, ironclad promise, but more of a general truth. It teaches us that lives committed to God and lived according to his will Succeed according to God's definition of success. That's important to understand. According to the world's definition of success, the results may be the opposite. All right, I think we got the point on that rule. Let's move on to guideline number two. Proverbs are often figurative, not literal. They're not always to be taken literal. Remember, this is a form of Hebrew poetry. And oftentimes the Hebrew poets would use figures of speech. Think metaphor. Or analogy. They usually point to truth in figurative ways. So, in other words, they don't state everything about a truth. A lot of them are what we would call technically or uh, maybe theoretically inexact. But, as one author said, they are unsurpassed as far as being learnable, memorable moral guidelines for shaping godly behavior. Number three, Proverbs should be read as a collection. Every inspired proverb should be balanced with others and understood in comparison with the rest of scripture. The more we read a single proverb in isolation, the less clear its interpretation might be. And that's true for any scripture, isn't it? We always have to look at one scripture in the context of the chapter, in context of the book, in context of what the rest of the Bible says. So that should always help. Proverbs should be read as a collection. All right. Rule number four, proverbs are worded to be memorable, but not necessarily to be theoretically accurate. They're meant to impart knowledge. They're meant to be retained, memorable. They're not meant to be philosophy that could impress a critic. But they are wisdom. They are godly wisdom. Remember that. Number five, finally, some proverbs do need a little translation in order to be appreciated. I said earlier, they don't need a lot of translation, but some do. For example, here's one that kind of reflects the culture at the time. It never made sense to me until I read a commentary. That would be Proverbs 25, 24, which says, Better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. What in the heck are they talking about? I thought to myself, if I lived on the corner of my roof upon the second story, well, I have a wood shake shingle roof. It's fairly steeply sloped. It comes down to a corner where there might be a little bit of a gutter that I could dig my heels into, but I certainly couldn't live on the corner of the roof there. But the houses of the Israelites, they often had open rooftop verandas with walls around them, kind of chest-high walls. So if you wanted to um, go up to the roof, you could entertain, possibly, have, I would imagine, They had furniture up there. So instead of sleeping on the couch when he got into a fight with his wife, the guy could just go upstairs to the roof and sleep on a cot in the corner of the roof. That's what that means. So we wanted to read this in the context of modern life. It's better to live in a garage than in a mansion with a woman you should have never married. That's what it's communicating. So, again, we have to keep in mind. Proverbs give good advice for wise approaches to living in a godly manner, but they're not always theologically exhaustive or technically precise. Hopefully, these are some rules that you can just kind of keep in mind as you read through these, and that might help a little bit. Okay, closing comments now. One last thing. There is a big difference between knowing and doing. This is the difference. I had to think about this. This is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Let me give you an example James 2.19 says this, talking about knowledge versus wisdom. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So demons have knowledge of who God is. They know full well, but they don't have the wisdom to worship. And, And it makes me think about the people outside, walking up and down Massachusetts Street right now. So many of them, if we went up and asked them, have heard about Jesus, the Son of God they may know that he died on a cross, but they have done nothing with that knowledge, which means they lack wisdom. Wisdom that you would get from the book of Proverbs. Wisdom then is the application of knowledge. This is what I'm getting at. It's kind of like technology is the application of science. Who cares what you understand? Who cares what you know? Who cares how good you are at science if it doesn't lead to technology? Who cares how much knowledge you have about God if you do nothing with it? So the question is, How do you apply that knowledge? Wisdom is applied knowledge. There are a lot of people who believe that the pursuit of knowledge can bring eternal salvation. Um, There's a heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism believes that man, by gaining knowledge, can ascend to God on his own power. But it's only when knowledge is applied as wisdom, godly wisdom, that this gift can be used to achieve God's purpose of granting wisdom to us. And only when it's subordinated to obedience to God does it achieve his purpose, again, for granting us the gift of wisdom. So we always like to ask the question as we leave our overviews, what would we be missing if we didn't have this book? If we didn't have Proverbs, we'd be missing the majority of the Bible's teachings on parenting, the majority of the teaching on finances. We'd be missing the Bible's central thinking on the fear of God and warnings about not fearing God. We'd also be missing a very practical lesson. As you read through the entire book, you realize that wisdom is not just something theoretical. It's not just an abstract idea. Wisdom actually exists. We are commanded to follow the wise path, to apply wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom is actually demonstrated, if you read the entire book, you'll see that wisdom is demonstrated when a person thinks and acts according to God's truth. But more importantly, Proverbs teaches also some key theological doctrines, just like the reality of our own human depravity, again, themes that we find throughout the Bible, our own spiritual blindness It teaches us that the God of the Bible is merciful and gracious and worthy of our praise and obedience. And we could say many, many more things about this little book. It's been wonderful for me to prepare this lesson. And I hope you'll come back next week because Pastor J.D. is going to give us our next overview, the Song of Solomon. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your scripture in this book of Proverbs, these little memorable sayings of wisdom. Lord, help us to apply the knowledge of you. Help us to be wise as you define wisdom, that we would glorify you, worship you, and realize what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.